This morning, I would like to talk to you about how we make decisions as a church and why. I want to talk to you today about how we make decisions as a church and why. And the reason why I'm doing that is after this meeting today, we're going to have another meeting. It's called the annual general meeting and decisions will be made. And sometimes people say, ah, that doesn't matter. Oh, it doesn't count. This is what's important. I live a very integrated life. And so what happens here affects there. And what happens there affects out there. We do have different dimensions of our lives, but all that we do is a life that's to be lived under God. And so as we live our lives, sometimes it's important to say, so let's think, how do we make decisions as a church? What would God say to that? And why do we do it that way? And so if you have your Bibles, I'm going to bring some instruction today from Acts chapter 6, 1 to 7. Turn there. Uh, I say it's instruction. Sometimes when I preach, people say it was inspirational. I say, that's good. I want you to feel like you want to follow after God. And you feel tenacious to be a God follower. Other times I would say it's more uh, educational, where you learn something. There's times when it's confrontational, when you think, I had to fight through this. But today's teaching or talk or message is really to bring some instruction on, on how we live our lives as the family of God and how Calvary really functions at our best, trying to do the, the heart of God or bring the heart of God and the will of God. As before we go into Acts chapter 6, I want to do something that may sound a little strange, but hear me out. I want to declare my bias. I want to declare my bias. There was a day years ago when they would say to you, oh, you're not supposed to have any biases. And if you have them, you're supposed to set them aside. But the tone has changed today, and they say, you're smart wise to declare your bias so that people can work with it and not be bowled over by it. For instance, I do marriage counseling. And when a couple comes to me, I declare my bias. I say to them, I understand that you're having struggles, but I need to let you know that I'm committed to the preservation of marriages, not the disruption of them. And if that's an impediment to you, you need to know that so that we can have a good engagement. But if I'm here just to be neutral, to try and be neutral, I won't be true to myself. And so it's a way of what's called declaring your bias. And so going into the scripture we're going to look at this morning, I need to declare a bias. You need to understand that I am an ordained Baptist minister. Uh, big B, little b, you decide kind of thing. But I, I don't deny that. And what that means is the family of believers I come from have a way of seeing things, the way of doing things. It's not that we know God and nobody else does. Don't ever get caught on that. Don't let anybody talk you into that. If somebody is a follower of Jesus, they're a follower of Jesus. But they're not Baptist. It doesn't matter. If they're a follower of Jesus, let it go. There's a great story. One time a fella was walking along and, and engaged another fella and said, I'm a Jesus follower. And the fella said, I'm a Jesus follower too. Oh, and they, they, they began to feel some affinity. And the first fellow said, yeah, he healed me. And the second person said, he healed me too. And they said, oh, there was even greater affinity. And then the first fellow said, yeah, I was blind and he healed me. Oh my goodness, I was blind, he healed me too. And there was such affinity. And then the first fellow says, yeah, he took some mud and he put it on my eye. And when I took the mud off, I could see. And the second fellow said, oh, the Jesus I know doesn't use mud. 
Jesus heals me directly kind of thing. We have no part of each other. It's meant to be funny. I'm not sure if I told it right or not. <laughs> but the whole point, sometimes we say our experience of Jesus is the only true experience, and we become limiting and prohibiting when the truth is Jesus loves all who love him. And so don't let your labels get in the way of your affinity in heaven. Having said that, though, we do kind of organize ourselves into families. And, and I use that as a descriptive term. And families have certain ways of behaving. Uh, whether you call them denominations, whether you call them religious groups, but in the Christian tradition. So, for instance, in, in my, my, my daughters, I have three daughters, they were raised McDonald. Now, the McDonald family has some behaviors. We like to save money rather than spend money. We like to eat middle-of-the-road food, not crazy food kind of thing. Uh, we like to live a life of relative stability, and, and it doesn't always work that way, but that's the, the way our family rolls. Kind of thing. She married a fellow, she lives in the States, and she married a, a fellow from um, Latin, uh, Latino, Me uh, Mexican-American background, Shane Flores. So she's now Lee Flores, she's no longer Lee McDonald. And he, he came from a culture that is, if you have it, spend it, <laughs> you know? And the spicier, the better kind of thing. And the, and the later, the earlier, you know? He just lived a very different lifestyle. So the two of them that got married, they say opposites attract. And so she's learning what it's like to live in a different family culture. And she's, Dad, it's really different. Um, yeah. And, and she's eventually kicking him in the line. I think there's hope for him eventually. She'll get him straightened out. But where I'm coming from is Baptists are a family. Uh, doesn't mean we're right, doesn't mean we're better, and even within our Baptist family, we have edges and crazy stuff. Uh, I, I take the human story again. I, I have two nephews from another part of the country. I won't identify them because they're just, they're the gong show. I mean, but they're part of our family. Yeah. And in the world called Baptists, we may think, oh, they, my point is there's cousins in the Baptist family you just kind of roll your eyes backwards with and say, oh, oh. But we don't have the power to kick them out, bring them in. Uh, Baptists believe this. Number one, we believe, and here's, here's if you're writing it down, we believe in the priesthood of all believers. And that may be a new phrase to be able to explain to you. Nobody is between us and God. Nobody is higher in the spiritual pecking order than the believer. And just because someone's a pastor doesn't mean he's closer to God. He or she has a responsibility and maybe a giftedness and maybe a commitment, but there's no chart or chart between you and God. Everybody talks to God. Everybody's responsible to listen to God. Uh, secondly, we believe that no one person has the mind of God. And so no one makes all the decisions for the people of God. We confer together and make decisions. The decisions aren't just democracy, they're prayerful. We, we say, Lord, help us to make wise movements for the people of God in our congregation. And so I'm, I'm raising it up more than just, oh, we won 60-40. It's not a democracy issue, it's a what is God saying to us, and no one person can say, I know God, you don't, be quiet. We confer together and we pray and we make decisions. And then the third piece of Baptist is we practice what's called the autonomy of the local church. The local church makes its own decisions. And where I'm coming from there is he said, well, well, why don't we just phone Toronto and tell them, ask them to tell us what we're supposed to do? And, and we don't work that way. And there are groups that do that, are more centralized, have a, a hierarchy. Baptists don't. And it doesn't mean we're right, it's just the way we do things. And so later on today, when we come together, 
we're going to make some decisions. And I want us to look at some scripture that supports it. There are other ways of making decisions, and it's not like we're right and everybody else is wrong, but here's why we do what we do. And that's really found for us today in um, the book of Acts, chapter 6, 1 to 7. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to take them. I have the New International Version, and I'm going to read the scriptures out loud. And I wonder if you would honor the Word of God by standing with me today where you are and hear the Word of God read to us. Acts, chapter 6. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. And so the word of God spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Amen. You may be seated. This is one of those passages in the book of Acts. There's a couple of them where Luke, the writer of the book, kind of summarizes things, kind of, and then he'll look at a summary paragraph. And this is the first paragraph where he has to deal with or talks about problems in the church. There have been external problems, um, people being put in jail, attacks being made, external uh, collisions. But this is the first time they'd had to deal with anything internally. And so he, he identifies in verse 1, there's some problems. I pick up in verse 1. He says, it, it's really complex. It's not just one thing. It's actually many things. In life, when you have problems, you can say it's because of this. But often it's complicated. There's multiple causalities. Uh, Graham, you're a school teacher. If a child's not doing well at school, that's pretty obvious. Then you find out that he, he doesn't get breakfast at home. So he's showing up without anything to eat. And you find out that his parents are in the midst of having a major marital conflict, even a divorce. And there's no support. And you think, ah, the issue is he's not doing well in school, but there's causalities and multiple causalities. Maybe you work in a workplace and somebody's not really pulling their weight at the workplace that you hoped they would or thought they would or they used to. And then you find out that they're, they're suffering from migraine headaches. And they haven't said a lot about it, but they're under a lot of pain. And not only that, but the doctors have no answer for their problem. You begin to realize that when we have problems in life, there's often multiple causalities going on. And that's what we find in verse 1. They've got problems in the church. But let's look at it. Begin in verse 1. It says, in those days, firstly, when the number of disciples was increasing, you think, oh, what a nice problem to have. There's more people coming than there used to. Yeah, sometimes our success becomes our problem. More people means less space. Oh, more people means new ideas coming in that we've never had to deal with before. Oh, more people means people saying things that we've never said. Oh, 
More people means things that I said don't get heard the way I used to want them to be heard. And so growing can be its own problem or part of the problem. The church is growing. And growth doesn't always lead to easiness and comfort. Sometimes it leads to disruption. The church is growing and it's causing, I'm suggesting to you, some disruption in the church. Secondly, there's some complaining. We read that the Hellenistic Jews, among them complain against the Hebraic Jews. And we see here a differentiation that, and we use the word racism today, and I don't know if I want to apply that word here, but we certainly recognize that different groups have different values, different groups have different priorities, different groups have different assumptions. And the, what are called the Hellenistic Jews, people who converted from a Greek background or from a non-Jewish background or came out of a different part than Israel or Jerusalem, people that, that weren't cultured from that culture, are complaining against the Hebraic Jews, people that have been brought up a certain way. And sometimes in life what gives us tensions is, I didn't grow up that way. Well, that's the way it is. Well, okay, but I didn't grow up that way. Well, I did. Yeah, but could we? No. And you find there's tensions going on. And you drill right down in verse 1, what's the cause or what's the, the disruptive issue? It's because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. The church is trying to do some good things. It's trying to provide a meal program. Saying people shouldn't go hungry. What a noble idea. But the trouble was in administrating it or in delivering it or making sure that it was functional, some people were being overlooked. How would you feel if in a room full of widows or grandmas or mothers, I'll use your example, your mother was being excluded from what everybody else was getting. And it was because she wasn't like everybody else, or in your mind, it's because she wasn't like everybody else in the room. If you have at all a heart for people, and especially a heart for your mother, you would be upset. There's problems. So there's problems in the local church. I want to suggest to you today that we should not be embarrassed or ashamed, we should be attentive to problems. Because wherever you have people, you will have problems. Whether you try to do something good for God, you will have misunderstanding. Whenever you try and work with differing people, you will have differences come up. And rather than being embarrassed about it or ashamed of it, you need to be attentive to it and say, what can we do about this? If you have no problems, you probably don't have a church. You ought to change your name to Piney View, Piney View Cemetery or something like that. Because if people are alive and kicking, there will be differences. And when those differences are communicated, there will be challenges. And so I just want to validate today for you that in the people of God, problems do happen. Don't run from them. Pay attention to them. Uh, secondly... Uh, we find that there's some partners in the solution process. Let's pick up in chapter 6, verse 2. So in light of what they're hearing, the 12 gathered all the disciples together. In light of what they're hearing, the 12. The 12 were the leaders of the church. Um, they're not called deacons here. They're not called elders. But it was pretty evident to all who was responsible for influencing the church. Who is responsible for guiding the church? There was this group called the Twelve, the Twelve Apostles. It was early in the development of the people of God. But it was pretty evident that there were leaders. And then I'm going to say there were 
the, the disciples, the, the membership, the followership. There were leaders and there were members. And I know that that's not a really sophisticated way of breaking things down, but it's what happened. You get everybody together to solve a problem. Rather than one person by themselves deciding, or one group by itself, there was this willingness to say, let's us get together and talk about this, rather than avoid it. You know this, but I want to say it to, to get it into the record. No one by himself or herself is the smartest person in this room. Sorry. There are some really smart people in this room. Don't get me wrong. I understand that. And I recognize the idea that there is differences of IQ and things like that. But nobody in this room is the smartest person in the room. We are smarter together than we are apart. I'll give you a little illustration. You see my hand here. If I took my pointer finger and decided to pick up, say I'm at the gym. Some of you go to the gym, you can appreciate this. And I want to pick up a kettlebell. Do you know what a kettlebell is? Uh, some of you, this, this means yes, this means no. Kettlebell is, is just like a, a weight and it has a hook on it, you can pick it up. So, so I have my, my pointer finger and I reach down. How, how heavy a kettlebell do you think I could get with one finger? I might get two kilograms. I might get five kilograms. I might, I, I don't know for a fact. I should, you don't think I can, eh? boy, I really feel supportive, okay. <laughs> There's a lot of love out there today, I'll tell you people, kind of thing. But the point is, there's only, but say I took my whole hand and put all five fingers together and reached down, I could probably grab that 5K kettle drum and pick it up. And say I put not only my hand in it, I brought my whole arm and shoulder and kind of side into it, I might even be able to get a 10 kilogram kettlebell. I might, I might be able to get a 20. See, my point is, the more people participating, the better things get. And it's even true in decisioning process. Be careful if you think you're the smartest person in the room and everybody else is wrong. It's not true. We make decisions together. And we come together. And I want to make, make a distinction here. In a church like a Baptist church, leaders lead. They seek to influence. They, they, have, to, they have to set direction. They have to point the way. But three or four times a year, the congregation comes together to participate with them in what's going on. Sometimes, in coming together, they hear what's going on. They, that's good. That's good. I didn't know that. Great. Thank you. It's, it's informational. But there's times when they come together and they actually decide together, they, whether you call it voting, whether you call it affirming, whether you call it confirming, but it's not the point of... We're going to tell you what's going to... There's actually the invitation in a Baptist world to say, let's us together decide what needs to happen. Uh, this is my, my leadership background, so I'm going to give you five things that a Baptist church decides on together, okay? And a lot of things they don't. They, they trust their leaders. Firstly, a Baptist church always decides on new members together. The membership votes for the membership. And a membership in a Baptist church means you love Jesus and you've been baptized. Now, we can debate, but that's what it means. If you've never been baptized, you can't be a member in a Baptist church. And the reason is, the Bible teaches, and we just believe the Bible, they believed and were baptized, and that they added to the church. So we place a really high value on believers' baptism. Uh, not a really high value, it's an essential value. You vote on new members. Secondly, you always uh, vote on identifying your leaders, identifying them. I didn't say picking them, I probably could, but identifying, are these the people that we believe God's gifts God's hand, God's wisdom are on. Because you don't want people that are not gifted, not wise, not mature, leading. 
So you vote to identify your leaders. Thirdly, you always vote on spending the congregation's money. Uh, rule of thumb is you cannot spend anybody else's money without their permission. Hey, Dad, I took your wallet. There's $100 missing. What? <laughs> Who gave you permission to spend $100? But if I say to my daughter, here's $100, go shopping, and she spends $100, she's got the permission. And where I'm coming from is we as leaders or leaders in a church usually bring forward a budget and say, here's where we think we need to invest the Lord's money this year. Is there agreement? And when a congregation agrees to that, in effect, they're giving permission. They're authorizing their leaders to go and lead the church spending the money. Fourthly, uh, I think you do need to be mindful. I'm thinking of the leaders here. You might want to invite the congregation's participation when you spend their time. And I'm going to explain that when you spend their time. And I'm not thinking um, we've decided to change the service from 10 to 10.30 on a Sunday morning. That's not what I'm thinking. That, that's really not spending time. That's just changing the time. Where I'm coming from is if, say, for one reason or other, uh, this building was blown up and you had to find another place to meet, and the only place you had to meet was Friday night at the school across the street. I think you'd be wise to go to your congregation saying, does this seem like a good thing or not? And the congregation says, yes, we will join you in that. The leaders are not punting. They're leading you, but they're inviting you to say, could you pray with us as we try and figure this out? And then the fifth thing is, um, when you ask a congregation to spend their emotional currency, and what I mean by their emotional currency is calling a pastor. When you invite a pastor to be with you, it's not just a job. The tick, 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 tick. It's a relationship. You're inviting a congregation to emotionally invest into a shepherd. And a, a sheep without a shepherd is not a good thing. So bringing a shepherd in. So I believe that it's, a, it's of God for the congregation to pray together and prayerfully discern. Even though the leadership may say, here's what we're bringing. Uh, the search committee has prayed. The board has prayed. We're inviting you to pray. Let's make a decision that honors God. It's not about democracy. It's about what would honor God could we together pray. And so later today in this uh, next meeting, you're going to vote on an interim pastor. And the elders have said, we need to prayerfully together do this. And I think it's a really wise thing to do that. Um, we partner in our decisions. Thirdly in this passage, in the latter part of verse 2, you see something about priorities. Look, Pick it up in the last half of verse 2. It says, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Everything in life is important, but some things can't be neglected and left undone. They're priorities. They're the big rocks. And, and the leaders say here, listen, there's a lot of good things to do here, but we can't not have the Word of God brought as the core center piece of who we are. And if we get put into other things and sidetracked by other things, we're going to neglect which, what are our priorities. And so they, they outline to us that as we make decisions, what are the priorities here? What, what, need, what are essentials? What can't be neglected? What if we don't do them? We're actually further behind, even though we've been busy doing many good things. And so they, they ask people to, to say, can you recognize these priorities? That's why we're doing what we're doing. Um, I, I think it's good for a congregation and the leadership team to re regularly identify your priorities and evaluate how you're doing with regards to them. Just saying, are we online or are we offline? Are we on target or are we side targeted? And then be willing to change and adapt. And so you're calling a pastor. Uh, it's a priority. 
And within that, you're expecting some things to happen. You're expecting him to preach or her to preach and teach the Word of God regularly. That's a, that's a priority. And we have a pastor, but they don't preach. Really? Why not? Ah, they're too busy. What? Secondly, we expect a pastor to, as a priority, to love the people in an exemplary way, to show compassion. Um, he works from the front of the church, and he works in the foyer. Uh, he's a person of compassion. We expect the pastor to model the Christian life uh, in prayer and in godliness. And you say, man, that's asking a lot. I know, but that's what the calling entails. We expect the, the pastor to shepherd the flock in the large sense and the little sense. And then there's a ton of other things to do. Could you, could you pick up the mail? Any chance you can make sure that the keys are left for the nursery in the morning? Uh, how about the sidewalks that didn't get shoveled? Any chance if you're in early on Thursday, you could take care of that? And there's lots of really good things. And I want to suggest to you that a pastor's life is borderline impossible, but there is a need to identify the priorities so that at least the essentials get done. And everything else, they need to be delegated. They let others in and need to work together. And so they come together and they identify priorities. Look at the proposal. It's found in verse 3 and verse 4. It says, brothers and sisters, the leaders suggest a solution. They're not taking over. They're suggesting a solution. Choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them, and we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. And so there is a sense of, you know, it's always a, 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 a challenge. We got problems. Well, how about we find solutions? Well, we got problems. How about we find solutions? Well, all I got is problems. I don't need more problems. I need some solutions. And so they come with a solution. And they say to the people, how about this? And they gave them some direction. They said, here's the task. Here's what we suggest. Could you go and do that and get back to us how it works? They, and as they, they trusted the people, and the people got it done. There was a lot of trust and good clarity. But we'll turn this responsibility over to them. We will trust them. You decide, and we will trust. And so I suggest to us there's a principle there in life when we, when we ask people to help, we have to trust them. Now, it's smart to give good direction. Here's what we need. Here's when we need it. Here's how much you're able to spend on it. Please don't spend more than that. Here's the timeline it's got to be done in. Good handing over describes the project rather than, I don't want to do that, you do it, kind of thing. And I see that happen a lot. I don't want to do that, you do it. Or, I'm too busy to do that, you do it. And yet, what happens is they go and do it. I don't like it that way, and we end up having this kind of thing. Good communication can solve a lot of problems. What is it you want done? How do you want it done? Do you have an opinion on what day you want it done by? And when we do that, it's amazing how things can get done with trust. Um, watch out uh, for not being clear. And secondly, watch out for being uh, stubborn when things come back to you in a cloud. What? What do you mean you didn't get it done? I told you to do it. Well, yeah, but you didn't tell me you wanted it done today. Well, you should have known it was to be done by today. Really? Do I read minds? Uh, and then egos get in the way and, and frustrations get in the way. And so let it go. Uh, there's a fifth thing here, congregationalism in action. Look at verse 5 and verse 6. We pick up the, the proposal pleased the whole group. Wow, that was a good proposal. I've never seen a whole group pleased like that. <laughs> they go and they choose, and they identify these people who are not high profile, but because of their reputation among them, they knew them. They weren't strangers, and they weren't all the same. 
Stephen, we meet later, he was the first or we see again later, he was the first to die for his faith, the first martyr, full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and this Nicholas from Antioch, who had been, who's probably a non-Jew, he's a Gentile, and he's converted to Judaism, and now he's converted, or he's filled it full in being a follower of Jesus. So they know these people, they bring these people to the apostles, and rather than saying, just tick the boxes, yeah, the position filled, it was a prayerful thing. We laid their hands on them and said, go and do the work of God. And that's full circle what I said earlier is that is preaching the work of God? It is. Is waiting on tables the work of God? It is. Is cleaning the sidewalk the work of God? It is. Everything we do is the work of God. And we need to infuse God's part into all of it in order to bring the dignity that God puts to it. And that doesn't besmirch the idea of priorities. I said that earlier. But everything we do is for God's sake. I remember a few years ago, I was uh, pastoring a church, and uh, we, we served coffee. I mean, you serve, everybody serves coffee. And, and for us, coffee was more than just black liquid to refuel people's caffeine deficiencies. It was a point of conversation, a point of engagement, where friendships were made. And so we, we, we had good coffee. And, and pardon me for being a coffee snob, but it needs to be good coffee, okay? Like, ugh, good coffee is better than bad coffee. Um, and the guy that was serving it, uh, he did it every week. He'd come early, he'd get it set up, he'd serve it, he'd clean up afterwards. And I said to him, Ray, I just really appreciate the work you do in setting up, serving, and cleaning up after coffee. And he looked me in the eye and he said, Pastor, it's my part in helping us get the Great Commission done in this church. <laughs> and I looked at him, I thought, are you kidding me? That's true. If coffee is part of how we connect with people, what I'm doing is not just busy work. It's part of getting the mission done. And I love that. They put this proposal, and it goes, and the congregation goes forward, and it works. It works. And look at the outcomes. I'm picking up in verse 7 here. Look at the outcomes. The mission kept on spreading. It says the word of God spread. Wow. So the word of God spread. It didn't get bogged down in internal conflicts. It kept doing what it's supposed to do. How do you know that? The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased. Whoa. More people were coming to faith. The very thing that had become a problem, they keep doing it because there are some problems that are worth having. Increased rapidly, and even a large number of the priests became obedient. And the mission went forward. The outcome was the mission was perpetuated. We believe that we have a mission. Uh, The reason why we're still here and not in heaven is God or Jesus has left us in this world to share the love of Jesus in such a way that people desire to join him in the following of Jesus. That's what we're here to do. That's why we exist. We want to live for Jesus in such a way that people who see and experience and encounter what we are, who we are, what we do, would say, there's something about this Jesus you follow that's worth paying attention to. That's our mission. And it requires work, smart decisions, tenacity, of willing to work through problems, of willing to let things go if they get in the way of the mission. But that's what the outcome is. And we have to ask ourselves, how are we doing in our mission for Jesus? And the outcome here was, things got going. And so, we need to, we need to remind ourselves, 
The problems we have are problems, but let's not let them get in the way of the mission, which is being people influenced to Jesus. I want to tell you a story in conclusion, and it, it illustrates kind of what I'm talking about. It's from my own past, and uh, I, I kind of smile when I tell it. Um, years back, I was pastoring a church, and the church grew. Uh, the sanctuary we used was smaller than this. We'd, the church had been there for 30 years, and it held probably 200 people on a Sunday morning. I don't know what you can hold, if that's about you, or maybe a little more. And we were regularly setting up chairs, and there were 210, 220 people, and it was a problem. And I was young and full of vinegar, and I, I proposed to the leaders at the time, how about we do two services? And the leaders had been doing one service for a long time, and they thought, ah, oh, do we have to? And I thought, well, if we want to continue to allow people to hear the Word of God and come together. And so we went to two services, and it didn't work. The, the congregational attendance dropped by 15% in six months. We were down to 180 people. We, we just went backwards. And we're doing two services. And I remember thinking to myself, well, this is not what I expected kind of thing. And finally, after a six-month trial run, I said, let's stop this. We went back to one service, and the people applauded. Okay, they thought that the pastor finally saw the light kind of thing. <laughs> so later this next year, we went to a leader's retreat. And being young and kind of a bit of a dog on a bone, I said to the leaders, hey, I have an idea how we can do two services better. And they said, one guy, I'm not doing two services. And he's, he's the influencer. He's the decision. I'm thinking, and he says, I would move elsewhere, the whole church, before I would do two services. And I said, really? You would actually go elsewhere if we could accommodate more people? Absolutely. I hate two services. I don't see my kids. I don't see my grandkids. I don't like it kind of thing. So I took him up on it, and uh, we went out, and myself and a couple of people in the church uh, contacted the local performing arts center that had an auditorium that held 400 people. And we negotiated with them. They said, yeah, you could rent it on Sunday morning. Here's the amount of money it would be. I said, before we sign a contract, could we have a test run on a particular Sunday? And uh, so we went down to the performing arts center. We had a, I think we had a wonderful Sunday morning, okay? It was great. And, uh, but being a person of process, I thought it was wise for the congregation to participate in the discussion. So a week later, we had a congregational meeting, and 100 members showed up, which was amazing, because usually 30 people show up for any meeting, and it's like, whoa, we have either struck a nerve or we've hit gold. What have we done here? And uh, the room had a robust debate, and at the end of the evening, we took a vote, and 81 people voted yes, and 19 people voted no. And so the leadership took that as sufficient strength that we would go forward. And I chose after that intense season to go on two weeks vacation. It was the middle of the summer. I came back after vacation my first Sunday, and one of the saints in the congregation met me after church and said, Pastor, did you have a good vacation? And I said, yeah, I had a fantastic vacation. And the person said to me, good, you're going to need it. And I'm like, <laughs> whoa, and sensing something not quite right there, I said to the person, really, what's going on? Well, we don't like what you're doing to our congregation, Pastor. And I said, really? Who's we? Well, you know who my friends are. And I said, well, I don't know who and how many. But being a person of processes, how about, and I, I used to do these things uh, once a quarter. We'd have what's called brown bag with the pastor. 
whether on a Friday afternoon or a Sunday after church. And it was a chance for me just to sit down and, and connect and collect with people. So how about we have a brown bag this Friday? I sensed it was urgent. And the person said, good, I'll tell my friends. And so on Friday, 40 people showed up for the brown bag with the pastor. And whether it was good sense or God's intervention, I chose to invite three of the board members to come to the brown bag. Ordinarily wouldn't have. So there are the four of us sitting there. And for the first half hour, we're sitting there eating our salmon sandwiches, and the room is just really tense, and nobody's saying anything. And I get up to the microphone, and... Uh, I said to the gathered room, I said, so, what do you want to talk about? And uh, the person who had been kind of the spokesperson stood up and said, I quoted here, we are upset with what you did to our church. And the room just listened. We are upset with what you did to our church. An elder, one of the people there, he stood up and he said, Pastor, can I answer this? Now listen. He went to the microphone and I quoted here, the pastor didn't do anything. Two weeks ago, we decided as a congregation to take a step that we together believe will be the best for our church in the long haul. Our pastor did not decide this. We did. So let's not blame him for what we decided. I will love that man for the rest of my life. Do you realize what he, he did good theology, he did compassion, he did wisdom, he did correction. The pastor isn't pulling all the strings. The elders aren't dictating an agenda. We decide together what does God want for our church. Can't decide everything. You don't want to be deciding how many rolls of toilet paper. You want to, don't want to be deciding how many shovels to buy. You don't want to worry about who painted what. You have to trust your leaders. But at the end of the day, we need to be together in this mission. Are we here to see people loved to Jesus in the way that we've been loved to Jesus? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the people of Calvary. I love these people, their brothers and sisters in Christ. You have allowed challenges to come in their midst, and I'm, I'm appreciative of that, Lord, because we, we grow and we learn and we're strengthened by our challenges. And I pray that through your Holy Spirit, prayerfully, lovingly, graciously, you will help them figure it out. I thank you for the leaders of this church, men and women who, who invest their hours and their hearts to see God's work done. Help them to be wise and gentle and tender and strong. In Jesus' name, amen.